0: Okay, all right, that's as far as I'm going to go today because I get too nervous when I speak Chinese, but uh, I can. And, and as John said before, I am Chinese. Um, I have a Chinese passport I have a Hong Kong passport, but I had to nationalize and, and become Chinese just to get that passport. So I feel very comfortable here. Um, I feel comfortable here because I've been here before. Uh, I've been visiting with my wife and my children. Uh, John and Annalisa and their kids in Beijing for close to 30 years and so I think ever since the beginning of capital uh, I've been coming by periodically so I understand. I'm the first non uh, capital uh, Leadership speaker uh, and so we're sort of breaking protocol here, but since I'm extended family. I think uh, that, that we're so cool about that um, Anyway, I want to uh, warm up with just uh, a, a, a prayer this morning if you could bow your heads, please Heavenly Father, this is a Thanksgiving weekend in America, uh, where people across that nation were giving thanks for the many blessings in our lives. And we want to give thanks this morning, too, for, for the blessings that we've received from you. Everything we've had has come from you, and everything uh, belongs to you. And so, Father, this morning, as we look at the issue of stewardship, uh, would just pray that you would open our hearts uh, and that your Holy Spirit uh, would be present with us. As we, as we learn from these two passages in Scripture uh, what your intention is for our lives when it comes to stewardship. We pray these things in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Uh, first of all, I bring you greetings from uh, Island ECC in Hong Kong. So if you're ever going the other direction for some R&R in our city, uh, we're at 633 Kings Road. So we have an appropriately named place and we're right next to Healthy Street. So uh, we, we are very appropriately aligned uh, in that city. You know, when we're young, we all have dreams about what we want to grow up to be. As a teen, uh, I had a dream of becoming a professional athlete, I think, and playing football, either being a wide receiver and catching the long bomb, or being the quarterback and and throwing the pass. Uh, But physically, I didn't have the stature or the speed, and I only made it through high school uh, before I had to give up on that particular dream. Uh, In college, I thought I might want to become a medical doctor. Uh, until I took uh, college chemistry, and I got my first C-plus, and decided I didn't have the right stuff uh, to do that. Um, I went to college, uh, and ultimately then got a degree in international relations because I love foreign languages, and I came to love foreign countries, Uh, and when I finished college, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to give some service, so I went to Taiwan for a year to teach English with a volunteer organization uh, affiliated with my university. Uh, and there, I, I guess I, I fell in love with the Chinese people, and the Chinese culture. So when I returned to the States, I um, tried out commercial banking for several years, so I could see a few different industries and see which one might bring me back to, to Asia in some way. And then I went to business school. Uh, to further my education and find an opportunity again to come back to China and I spent two years looking for jobs that would bring me um, to Asia particularly in the marketing area. Uh, at business school uh, when I was there probably a third to a half of the people went into investment banking so there were a lot of interview sessions uh, and discussions about investment banking but investment banking was all about money alright and, and, and just the way I saw people just um, magnetically attracted uh, to that aspect made me very nervous. And so, um, I, I, just inside I felt fearful because I thought money might make me a prisoner. And uh, so I wanted to stay away from it as far as I could. On the flip side, deep down, uh, I wanted to be known as successful, and that might, meant having a big title. Uh, and the trappings of wealth, like a nice home and a big bank account, all right? And my co- in college, actually, my father had seen some of these materialistic desires and he gave me a poster, uh, which if we can put the next slide on the screen. The screens are small, but um, anyway, that, that is a mansion with a Rolls-Royce out front. And at the bottom of that poster, 40 plus years ago was a little caption that said, my tastes are simple, I like the best. So that's what my dad thought of me. Um, so I didn't wanna join investment banking because um, I was fearful of being made a prisoner, but you know, actually when I came out of school, out of business school, I was actually a prisoner of money through debt. Right, my wife and I had accumulated probably 50,000 in college debts and Um, I had looked at going with a missionary agency to China, actually, and uh, no missionary agency would take me because I was in debt and there would be no way to pay that back on a missionary salary. How many can relate to that? Okay, a few of you? All right. Um, Anyway, uh, I realized that in Asia that would never happen because Asian parents pay for their kids' college education, and that's not a big issue. uh, I need to give my parents a little more credit. They they contributed to my education, too. All right. But God had a sense of humor um, because the one job that would take me back to Asia uh, and leave me there was investment banking. And so um, I was dragged kicking and screaming, I guess, into that one opportunity. And uh, I signed on with... um, a company called Goldman Sachs that sent me to Tokyo uh, to sell bonds uh, to Asian financial institutions like Bank of China, Bank of Communications, uh, the Taiwan Central Bank, which we called the vacuum cleaner because all it did was buy and never sell, Uh, a very wealthy country coming along at that time. Uh, Goldman then moved me in 1988 to Hong Kong, uh, where we've been ever since, and I took after uh, or looked after uh, institutional clients uh, for, for the next five years. Uh, then I switched uh, companies and went into the, the, uh, the personal, uh, the individual side of, of, of private banking, and I was a stockbroker uh, with one firm and then joined my current firm about 14 years ago, and now I'm a private banker. I help rich people stay rich or get richer, all right? Um, so, you know, God's having a lot of fun with me. That's not where I expected to be. But he had given me a talent for selling, uh, and, um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, he's also blessed me with an income that does far more than cover my basic needs. So I was able to pay back all my debts, uh, and then I started to have a surplus, and I had to figure out what to do with it. And so I went to Scripture uh, and tried to figure out what God's calling for me, what he wanted me to grow up to be uh, as a steward. I also discovered this amazing book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity uh, by Randy Alcorn. Has anybody seen or read this book? Or at least a couple of you have. All right, it's probably the best thing next to the Bible to give you the theology of money and, and a challenge uh, to, to live uh, in the biblical manner. Um, I I have, I think, a a reasonable understanding of this concept of stewardship because I am in the money management business. And a client would entrust to me his funds uh, and expect me to understand his risk profile, his desires, uh, his time horizon, uh, and his return objectives. And so if I did a good job, he might give me more. If I did a bad job, he might take it away. But it wasn't mine. All right, and that's an important thing, I think, to understand when it comes to, to stewardship. All right, can you imagine if I just took that money and spent it any way I wanted? How long would he, he leave the money with me? Uh, probably a very short period of time. He might sue me, too, for misusing it. Um, thank heavens God doesn't do that. Um, but a, a, um, a, a steward um, is someone who is entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interests. All right, so that's what God calls us to do uh, with all that he's entrusted to us. So I found, as I've been teaching on biblical stewardship for the last 20 plus years, a couple of passages uh, which show a very stark dichotomy between how two different businessmen Handled um, money, and you just heard the one scripture read from uh, Zacchaeus. All right, in in Luke chapter. Um, 18, and we're going to be looking at a passage just half a chapter past that in Luke 19 when we look at what I will be calling the rich young ruler or or businessman in this case. And so they both um, were business people. They both encountered Jesus, and they both received a challenge on how they were to handle their money. Uh, And we're going to see some profound conclusions on how they went about that. Um, So if we had lived in the time of Jesus, and we had encountered this um, rich young ruler, um, I would ask ourselves, or we should ask ourselves, would we want to be like him, all right? Because he had a lot of money, so he had no money worries. Um, He followed God's commands and God seemed to bless him. would you raise your hand if you'd like to be a guy like that? Lots of money and God blesses you. That's a great combination, is it not? Okay. All right, the, the, on, on the other hand, you have a choice of becoming the other business guy, a, a Jewish tax collector. And again, transport yourself back 2,000 years. Uh, and we know a few things about tax collectors uh, if you've read through the Bible. Uh, and can I see how many hands of who'd like to be a Jewish tax collector 2,000 years ago? No volunteers, okay, that's uh, pretty consistent with what I have when I teach too. All right, so we don't wanna be like the one guy, we would rather be like um, the the rich young ruler, all right? Now, both these guys had an encounter with Jesus. Uh, They both sought him uh, on that particular thing. And so today we're gonna look at, uh, I guess, four questions related to how they uh, related to him and I have another slide that is totally unreadable, Uh, so fortunately I'm gonna tell you all the things that are on that slide, Uh, and I'm sure somebody can get you a copy if you want it afterwards. But the first thing we're gonna look at is their relative status in society, uh, both morally uh, and financially. The second thing is, uh, what was each of these guys doing going to Jesus? Third, how did Jesus treat them and then how did they respond to them? And lastly, what are the consequences uh, of their choices? So let's look at the first one that you can't read. Oh, it's not there anyway. Okay, Um, so that first question was, um, uh, what was their economic and and moral status in society? So um, the rich young ruler obviously was rich, all right? He had a lot of money. Uh, He was a successful businessman at the time. And in the eyes of society in those days, uh, he was considered spiritually rich too because he must have done something right Otherwise, God wouldn't have blessed him, all right? Because God made promises in the Old Testament, if you obey me, I will bless you. And being blessed financially was one of those, those benefits. So he was probably held in very, very high esteem and had very high self-esteem uh, and thinking I'm the man to go for and probably be the kind of guy uh, that your pastors and elders would bring on stage and say, this is my guy, Right? right? We want you to be, grow up to be like him. Alright? So, uh, in, the, in the Jewish world, he was the go-to guy. On the other hand, we got Zacchaeus. Alright? And if we look at the history of, of tax collectors um, from a, a, a financial sense, he was a typical tax collector. He had grown to be very rich. Alright? But he was spiritually and socially despised. Alright? Because Uh, In those days, tax collectors were known for abusing their position and collecting more than the Roman government had asked them to collect. And they were traitors to their own people than by colluding with the Roman government officials. Uh, And so they were total social outcasts on that. So Zacchaeus was basically at the bottom of the society on on that side, whereas he was wealthy uh, on the other side. And he was probably very lonely because the only people he could hang out with were other tax collectors, Uh, so a small group of guys. Um, We also don't see anything about him helping others uh, at that stage, Uh, so he was not exactly the role model that you wanted to be to grow up as a a young Jewish kid. Um, Second question that we have, why did they come to Jesus? What What were they looking for? If the rich young ruler you know, had everything made, why was he, was he coming to Jesus? For some reason he had an, a nagging feeling uh, that maybe he was missing out on something and he uh, wanted to make sure that he was going to achieve his ultimate uh, quest, which was acquiring eternal life. And he wanted to be certain he was on the right track. Uh, he wanted confirmation that he was doing enough good works and that, that was going to be the way that, that gets him to heaven. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, probably was uh, despairing that he was forever condemned to be an outcast at the bottom of society and had zero hope uh, for eternal life himself. Uh, we said before he was sort of the scum of the earth uh, and no one had wanted to be near him other than those other tax collectors. But... He had heard probably about this guy, Jesus, who was going around and was very different from other people who were religious leaders. Uh, Was being called a prophet uh, and he was hanging out with not the rich young ruler types, but was hanging out with all of these outcasts. And so he's saying, hmm, uh, maybe, Maybe I'm gonna get a second chance uh, if I go and learn something uh, from him and maybe I can get back into the community with everybody else. Uh, but um, when he heard Jesus was coming to Jericho, then he went to sea. And as you heard in the scripture, he wasn't a tall guy, uh, so he climbed a tree, which is a really humiliating thing to do in the culture uh, in those days as an adult. Kids okay, adults no. All right, so um, they've both come to Jesus for their different reasons, all right? And then uh, they start interacting with Jesus. So how did Jesus treat them, and how did they respond to some of the requests that he made in their lives? So in the case of the rich young ruler, he asks the question that Jesus write out, what must I do to have eternal life? And uh, Jesus then responds to him um, did I lose my page here. Pardon me. Yeah, okay. Um, no, I'm there. Pardon me. Um, and, and, and Jesus says, well, have you kept all the commandments? It said, where it says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you should not give false testimony, and honor your father and your mother. The Christian ruler thinks a second and says, yeah, I've been doing those. Uh, tells Jesus that, and then inside he's probably thinking, I think I got this in the bag, all right? I am on the right track, and eternal life is mine. Um, But Jesus didn't give him too long to gloat over that, uh, because then he makes another invitation uh, to the rich young ruler. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, Give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Oops. That's not what he expected to hear. He did not see that one coming, uh, I'm guessing. But Jesus had realized that the rich young ruler was first of all, relying on his own deeds for salvation. Salvation by works, as we say nowadays. Second, he wasn't even following all the Ten Commandments, all right? Because they left out the very most important one that he was not obeying, which is the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Zacchaeus, when he then encountered Jesus, didn't really say anything. Jesus did all the talking uh, that we see in scripture. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Think he was shocked? Probably, absolutely. It was too good to be true. All the things he'd heard about Jesus are really happening to him. And Jesus was looking past his choices, past his sins, everything that everyone had condemned him for all his adult life. And he was getting a second chance. Um, like all these other outsiders, he had hit the jackpot. All right, Jesus had invited himself to his home for a meal. Um, so uh, clearly excited about the opportunity. All right, Now we want to look at what happens to uh, both these guys in their response to, to what Jesus had to say. The rich young ruler Surprised also at the request to give everything you have away, started doing the mental math in his head. He's a businessman, so he's, he's counting the costs, literally. He says, if I give all this away to Jesus, I have to give up my lifestyle of fine dining, my nice accommodations, hobnobbing with the leaders of the day, and that vineyard I have for my weekend getaways. Um... My friends are all going to leave me because I'm not going to treat them for meals uh, anymore and they won't want to have anything to do with me. Uh, today, living in Beijing society, uh, it'd be like giving up your home in the nicest suburbs of, of, of Beijing, uh, dropping any country club membership you might have, uh, eating at little roadside uh, stands rather than the Mandarin Oriental's uh, hotels, five-star restaurants. All right, so that would be probably a tough challenge also uh, for us today. And so the rich young ruler in doing this math said this this costs too much and he walked away sad because money had become his means of security, his status and identity and not God. And he decided the praise of men was more important to him than the praise of God. He wanted no part of sacrifice he wasn't prepared to endure hardship because money had probably made him soft. Uh, and money had become an idol. It came before God. Likely he didn't even hear the second half of Jesus' offer because he stopped at the first. You will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. All right? Jesus had offered him something imperishable in the, infu- in the future eternal treasure, which scripture tells us cannot be lost. And he also offered him a chance to come alongside him, to follow him and see the God of the universe working um, in that society, uh, coming alongside him. So Jesus offered him something more valuable, but he loved money so much that he couldn't trust Jesus to give him something better. It's kind of sad, huh? Holding on to his wealth was the safer option for him uh, rather than investing in the kingdom of heaven on earth. He sh- chose short-term gain for long-term pain uh, as he had a short perspective on time. And how much joy did he get out of that? He said he went away sad, all right? So all the stuff that he had was not bringing him the satisfaction, all right? But to give it up would, was, was just too much for him. His heart followed the wrong treasure, Going back to Zacchaeus over here, all right? Jesus comes and something happens in that encounter at the home and he seems to have a complete change of heart on how he lived. He redirected his treasure and his heart followed. He offered to give half of what he had to the poor, far above what any tithe requirements of the time had required. And he also offered restitution by paying back four times uh, what he had stolen from people, more than the, the normal two times that he had, all right? He probably bankrupted himself with those promises, all right? So um, he gave up everything uh, to, to, to Jesus uh, and, and surrendered everything uh, to him. And can you just feel the joy in the passage as he was shouting, look, Lord, this is what I'm going to do, all right? Complete contrast again with the rich young ruler, um, so, brings us to the fourth question there. What are the consequences of each guy's decision here? Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, re included. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He had gained eternal life and now had an impact in the kingdom of heaven here on earth with his giving and for eternity. So, um, the rich young ruler though, in contrast, decided money was more important than obeying and following Jesus. Um, Jesus had come, as we said, to seek and find the lost, but the rich young ruler didn't realize that he was the one that was lost. As a result, on that occasion, he walked away from an opportunity for salvation. He missed out on entering and being part of the kingdom of heaven. So this just shows you the power of money uh, to become an idol that comes before God that keeps us separated from God and costs us so dearly that our salvation can be at stake. So, how do we then apply what we saw in these passages to our own lives. How can we avoid the fate of the rich young ruler, have a chance more like Zacchaeus? How do we grow up to be good stewards? First question everybody asks when I teach the class, well, does that apply to all of us, that thing that we have to sell, everything that, that we have? I can't find another scripture that talks about selling Uh, everything that we have. And there are many passages talking about people that says command the rich to do the right things, but not selling and giving everything away. But um, God does want us to surrender uh, our ownership over all we possess, our time, our talents, and our treasures. They actually belong to, are controlled by, and come from Him. And He wants us to steward them to his glory." This isn't easy as money, as I said before, exerts enormous power over us and wants to deceiving us into putting it it before God in our lives. Second thing we can do is something that uh, a Christian writer, Bruce Burkhauer said uh, in a stewardship piece. He said, there is nothing that says we have power over our money greater than our ability to give it away. There's nothing that says we have power over our money greater than our ability to give it away. Giving somehow helps break this stronghold of greed uh, and control of money over us. But giving doesn't come naturally. It's really, it's, it's really got to be learned. Right? As I mentioned before, I've been teaching on biblical stewardship now for over 20 years in Hong Kong. And as I check with the students, they say, we've all been taught how to save, all right? The Chinese culture saves gloriously, all right? Um, But my parents never taught me to give. So that was not part of their their cultural upbringing. I could say that's probably true in most cultures uh, in the world. Um, And as a result, I see a whole lot of hoarding, all right? I know this is going to be on tape, but I see a lot of rich young rulers in my church, Um, and and I have the opportunity to help them uh, see other things. You know, hoarding leads to a false sense of security, uh, self-sufficiency, and complacency. On the flip side, it also leads to a great fear of loss. The more you have, the harder it is to give up. And so I always think of a visual picture of, of people who have a lot of money as standing on this huge pile of things and at their top and they're you know, worrying about teetering over and falling off this pile of money if it somehow disappears. And so they're very scared because of that, which is not what God calls us uh, to be uh, or to feel, uh, actually. Um, the, uh, the other thing that uh, when we make hoarding Uh, our our pattern is that we're really losing out on eternal rewards. Uh, I've heard another person say that uh, when we die uh, we can't take all this money that we've had on earth with us but we can send it on ahead uh, to heaven uh, by giving it while we're here. So we need to counteract this habit of hoarding uh, and use the antidote which we'll call a giving plan, and can we show that third slide, please? I've read a lot of books on giving, and and one of them is written by Ron Blue. Can anybody even see that in the back? Not really? Okay, so we'll have to walk through that. Anyway, um, Ron Blue has set out sort of three levels of giving for us to consider. The should give, the could give, and the would give. The should give... Uh, is the most basic, uh, the, the training wheels of giving. And that says, you know, start out with a tithe uh, on your income, a percentage uh, that is uh, proportionate to what you make. So if you make $100, you give $10. If you make $1,000, you give $100. And as it goes up, um, in that should give, we also want to prioritize our giving. Um, when we look at the whole spending plan that we develop as being the first cut, uh, check that we cut uh, in our lives. Most people, I I find, uh, have their live plan done first and their give plan last, all right? But that's not how God calls us uh, in Scripture. Uh, He wants us to give of our first fruits, and so the first check that we cut uh, is to God, and then we learn to live uh, on the rest adding savings in there, uh, which is not the topic today. All right, so uh, if we wanna avoid the leftover mentality, then we need to start off with with giving first uh, on our spending plan. The second one, the could give, is uh, is something that needs to be carefully planned uh, because it's us sitting down, looking at how we spend our money now and seeing if there's a way that we can maybe spend less in order to to give more. So it's planned and it will be sacrificial. The third category is what he calls would give. Uh, And this is if you have, for example, a salary increase that is not expected or your Aunt Mary dies and you get an inheritance uh, or or you find something on the roadway uh, and you want to pre-commit this so that uh, when it comes, you're, you're ready to, to give it away and g- give an even higher uh, percentage uh, of that. So uh, three different ways, should give, could give, and would give. Um, I started learning about the should give, I think, right out of college in my home church, uh, the same one that uh, John was a youth pastor at, uh, Lake Avenue Congregational Church in Pasadena, and uh, so I'm very grateful that, that someone taught me about giving uh, in those days. And so as my income went up, then uh, I actually then created a schedule that at a higher income, I would give more away. So if I made $10,000, I'd give 10%. If I made 20,000, then maybe I go to uh, 15 or 20. And so I had a whole scale worked out uh, because I was in an industry where my income could grow quite dramatically. Uh, and I made it to 30% uh, one year. Um, but uh, in future years, my income went back down, and so I wasn't able to give at that particular level. Uh, and uh, uh, now I'm closer to probably 20%. I still got kids in college, in American colleges, and that's very expensive. So uh, I have to meet those responsibilities also. Once my kids are through college, though, then I'm hoping to to increase my giving Uh, even further, and to begin looking at my assets, not just my income, and see if they appreciated, and what can I possibly give on those. Uh, I've also learned uh, from another book, uh, uh, or reminded of from another book that's come out in the last couple of years called God and Money, how we discovered true riches at Harvard Business School. So these were two um, alumni that uh, came a couple decades after me, They went to a class at Harvard Divinity School uh, by a professor named Harvey Cox and uh, were asked to write a a thesis paper uh, related to uh, Christians and and giving. And they went out and interviewed, uh, I guess a couple hundred Christians uh, who were graduates also of the business school to to find out some things. And they, uh, in this book, talk about the same giving principles I talked about, but also the importance of doing it in community, uh, in accountability. And so they created a group of friends that would come together on, on a quarterly or an annual basis and sit down and open um, their balance sheets and income statements to one another and explain to each other how they use their money and to encourage one another to uh, be generous uh, in what they have. So doing things in community is a very, very powerful way to reinforce. Writing things down in a plan and pre-committing to them is also a powerful thing because I went through a period when my, as I said, my income went down uh, and with the worst case being in 2008 when we had the great, the global financial crisis, the GFC, and my income went down below my annual expenses and so I had to cut giving and I had to uh, dig into savings. Uh, to, I, I still tithe, but uh, but beyond that, it was it was a challenge. So um, I think God calls us to to give as he as he blesses us. Um, people also ask me, okay, so now I've decided to give. Where do I give it to? And I think Scripture points out three main areas. Uh, one is we give to our church. All right, because the passage in Galatians 6:6 says that we're supposed to honor those who teach us, uh, and so we want to support those who minister it to us. Second, I think we're called to give to um, give for outreach to the unreached, i.e., missions, and that's our great commission verse that many of you know from Matthew. And the last category is to care for the needy, the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and the alien from Zacharias. So. Uh, Those are the things that we want to give to. Anything that has some semblance of bringing somebody closer to God. All right. Now, many people want to give to other non-faith-based organizations. uh, May want to give back to their university for what they, and I've done that. All right. But I don't make them my primary uh, giving targets uh, because there are a lot of non-Christians that can give to these organizations, but very few Christians, uh, because many come to lower paying professions, uh, like Christian workers and, 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 um, and missionaries, and they don't make as much income. Uh, so these schools need our giving more. So I give more now to Biola than I give to Stanford or, or Harvard Business School, uh, and feel that that's what God has called me personally to, to be doing. Many times people ask me, "Has it gotten easier to give uh, over the years?" Uh, and I'd say the tithe uh, is something that I has just so ingrained as a habit uh, that I can do it even in those bad years, uh, like two thousand eight. Um, but going beyond that all, still tests my faith, and so I got to go back to scripture. Uh, I've got to seek God in prayer to see what He wants me to be doing with what I have. Uh, but All the blessings when I do give that we talked about, Zacchaeus feeling, the the joy and such, I can also attest to being very, very powerful and a wonderful incentive that God has uh, because we've already been taught it's better, it's more blessed to give than to receive, all right? So God promised to bless us when we give. And I know that when I'm giving money to uh, advance the kingdom and bring souls into relationship with Christ. It creates uh, great joy. I've been able to um, support John and his parents um, in their particular roles and partner alongside them. And t- to hear of John's exploits, as you probably know, this this man. Um, you gave some wonderful tributes to me, but I'd like to return those to you, John. All right? You go where most men and women do not dare to go, and you take huge risks. Uh, to serve the Lord. So you're a hero to me too, brother. Um, let, let me gain my control. That was a little unscripted there. Um, anyway, um, so, you know, hanging out with people like John, um, investing in people like him uh, brings me great joy. And then as a guy in, in the money field, this, this, this deal with eternal rewards is, is quite a good deal. All right, when I look to invest with my clients, uh, we have to tell them nowadays, well, you have a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, and you're gonna earn maybe five to 7%, all right? And so you finally convince them that that's a, a good deal in this environment. And then you compare that with uh, what you get when you invest in heaven, where God says, I will multiply this 30, 60, and 100 times. That's like 300%, 600%, and uh, a thousand percent. All right, I can't reproduce those. So it's easy to do the math and realize it's a much wiser thing to do to invest in eternal rewards. Um, so, um, in, in, in just finishing up here, my, my thoughts is that, uh, you know, when I waver, when we waver, we need to look at the example of Jesus himself, the great steward, all right, who gave everything for us. He who was rich became poor for our sake so that we might become rich uh, in 2 Corinthians. And we give because Jesus gave. And we can only give well with the knowledge that everything has already been given for us. And so our stewardship must be anchored in the person of Christ who gave away everything for others and who put his own life on the line in complete obedience to the Father and was duly honored as, as a result. So we are created in the image of God, of Jesus. So giving's in our DNA when you think about it. So let's go and live as we're designed to give as totally sold out stewards. So uh, as, a, as a, a benediction for you today, I wanted to just pray a blessing on you. May God honor your stewardship as you give generously from all he first gave us. And as your own elder John Still said last night at the Thanksgiving dinner, um, you are blessed to be a blessing. So go out and be a blessing. Thank you very much.